A case of lupus in her childhood was the catalyst of Professor Joanne Blanchfield's career in science. It was Joanne's doctors who guided her away from a career in medicine and towards one in research. Through her career, Joanne has worked with Indigenous Australian communities on investigating the chemistry of natural medicines, taking on a number of postdoctoral positions, including Johns Hopkins University in the United States, the Australian National University in Canberra, and now works as a Deputy Head of School in the School of Chemistry and Molecular Biosciences at UQ. It was after a life-threatening medical incident Joanne realised the critical importance of building a strong, trusted network. It was a lesson in perspective and acknowledging that even with setbacks, your career will still be there when you get back. In this conversation, Joanne talks about taking on leadership roles as early as possible in your academic journey, the importance of travel for career development, and making yourself competitive through your research and good academic citizenship. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Women in Science. Joe. I'd like to go back to the beginning. Where did your interest in science come from? And what age did you realise you became interested in science? So I guess I was always a curious kid, but it really struck me when I was in grade eight. So what was I, 13? I was diagnosed with lupus. So systemic lupus erythematosus. And that took several months of blood tests and mucking around with doctors. And of course, I decided to look into the disease. And this was long before Google or any of that. In my tiny brain, I decided not enough was being done. And so you have to do things yourself. So I decided then I was going to be a scientist and do medical research. So I was very fortunate to have very good physicians at the time and I spoke to them about this is what I've decided I want to do and I have been eternally grateful to them that all of them said don't do medicine. They said if you want to do medical research, be a scientist and do research. If you want to treat people, do medicine. And I've always been very grateful for that. That's pretty unique advice actually. It was and I was surprised But all of them said the same thing. Don't do what I do. (laughs) So from an interest in in biomedical research, you turned your attention to chemistry in your honours. Can you talk a little bit about what attracted you to chemistry and why you undertook that for your honours degree? So chemistry found me, I guess. I did come to uni thinking I was going to do medical research. And so I did first year physiology and first year biochemistry and I was one of those really annoying students who kept asking why, but why, but why does it do that? And at the bottom of all those whys was always a chemical reaction. And so by second year, I had realized that chemistry of biological systems is actually what I really liked and I happened to be pretty good at it. So chemistry kind of chose me at that point. When I decided to do honours, there was... I could have done either. I had done enough in both biochemistry and chemistry, but the chemistry staff really looked after me. There was a new staff member in chemistry who happened to be a woman, and that was Mary Garson, and that was very exciting because she was the first woman chemistry lecturer, and so I decided I'd do honours with her. Hmm. She was pretty interesting and new. Small world, also one of our previous interviewees. Indeed. (laughs) 
And so did you find that particularly important at that stage of your career to have a female mentor or a female lab head that you could look up to? It was certainly unique at the time. Probably at the time we didn't understand how important it was, but I I do think it was a bit of a watershed moment for the school and for my class in particular. There were very few girls doing honours, but to have somebody standing in front of our class who was a woman was just mind-blowing. It's like, oh, look, women don't just do biochemistry because a lot of the biochemistry lecturers were female, Hmm. but none of the chemistry ones. It was important to us, I think. Mm. What's the expression? You can't be what you don't see. Exactly. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your PhD. Now, I'm not a chemist. I'm going to confess I've never done chemistry in my life. Um, so you're <laughs> we should have to... change that. Oh, no, no, no. no. I'm <laughs> stuck with viruses. What exactly did your PhD look at? So I had two different projects because I really wanted to do synthesis, which is why I didn't stay with Mary for my PhD. She didn't do any synthesis at the time. And I still wanted to do natural products, which I had learnt with Mary. And so we had one project that looked at a plant bulb that was used by the Indigenous communities for wound healing, and it was related to something in Japan, and they'd just found some really interesting bioactives in the Japanese plant. And so we had that plant for the project, and then the second project was to make a natural product that had been reported in the literature from a marine source. And I didn't know at the time, but my boss, Bill Kitching, didn't believe the structure. And so the only way to disprove it at the time, because there was none of this stuff out there, was to make it and show that it didn't match. So he sent me on this train to make this natural product, which turned out to be quite difficult to make. And of course, it wasn't didn't match the natural product at all, which he had predicted but hadn't told me. I mean, hypothesis testing, I guess. Yes. Yeah. It would have been nice if he shared the hypothesis (laughs) with me, but that's okay. So that was the project. So I had a little bit of synthesis and a little bit of natural products, which is exactly what I wanted. And then what made you decide to go on to do a postdoc and, and what sort of influenced your decisions around where to do a postdoc and what area to do it in? It was really interesting. And again, it was good advice. So I had gone on a visit during my PhD to Steve Lay in Cambridge. And Steve Lay was one of the most important organic chemists at the time, still is in many ways. He happened to be friends with my boss. And so I got money from the school, a special scholarship to go and spend three months in his lab. So when I was looking for a postdoc, I could have gone back to Steve. And so I wrote to him and I wrote to some people in the UK because there was kind of an expectation that all Australians go to the UK. That's what they do. Mm. So particularly in chemistry, all the chemists ahead of me in the group had gone to Cambridge or Reading. And Steve, bless him, he wrote to me and he said, you know I would have you back in a heartbeat, but I don't think it's good for you. I think you should be in the States. I happen to be the student representative on a lecturing hiring recruitment committee for somebody called James DeVos. And just for context, for those who don't know, James DeVos is the current head of SCMB, my school. So technically our bosses, I guess. Yes. (laughs) I was the student representative. And at one of the functions, I 
said to him, I'm having trouble finding a postdoc position in the States. I don't really know anybody. And he gave me a name of somebody he had postdoced with. He must have done an okay job because the uh, supervisor wrote straight back to me and said, sure, I'll have you. And so I ended up there in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins University. Now, how important do you think it is for people to do a stint of their training overseas? And is it essential or is it something that it's just a personal preference now? I still think if it's possible, it is important for all sorts of reasons. I absolutely believe that for anybody, travel is the best education you can have. You're a better person. You get out of your comfort zone. You learn to appreciate what you have at home and you see people in their home. And I always approach travel as I'm a guest in your home. I still think if you can manage it, it's better to have at least one postdoc overseas so that you can see how other places do things. It also really helps with your network later on. I have colleagues that I worked with at Hopkins all over the United States who I can now send an email to, call on, you know, for visits when I'm in the States. I've got this really great PhD student. She's finishing soon. Do you have any positions in your lab? So you were living in the States. What drew you back to Australia? It was partly work and partly personal. So I knew I didn't want to work in the United States for the rest of my career. I had figured that out after two and a half years. It's a wonderful place and the people are great, but I knew it wasn't for me. I'm very close to my family and I just couldn't see myself staying away for that long. So I was conscious of the fact that I needed to get back so that I had a profile in Australia to be competitive for lecturing positions. Mm. So I had decided that I wanted to stay in academia and I wanted to be an academic. If I wanted to be in industry, I probably would have stayed in the States for a bit longer and established myself in industry in the States. And that would have been easier then to transfer. But I knew I wanted to be an academic. So I knew I had to be on the ground here. Mm. And ANU was at the time, the perfect place to be. And we often joke, those of us that were there as postdocs, that it was the holding pattern for academics, young academics in Australia. Everybody came back to ANU. They had a terrific program that brought you back, the postdoc program. And so as soon as a lectureship was advertised, most of your colleagues were down there being interviewed as well. Hmm. It was a very odd place at the time. (laughs) And a lot of us, are now academics. So Craig Williams was there with me, Jason Smith, who's University of Tasmania, Kate Joliffe, who's head of chemistry in Sydney or was. So the system works. The system worked. Yeah. If you look around now at the chemistry departments in Australia, you will find an awful lot of people who were postdocs at ANU at around the same time I was. How funny. How did you manage that then going between labs and taking your research with you? Could you take your postdoc research with you to ANU or did you have to start afresh? No, you had to start afresh. My boss was very firm about that (laughs) and for good reason. It was his research, not mine. And the lab I was going to certainly was very different. It wasn't equipped. So the lab I went to in the States, deliberately so, was pretty unique for the time. The supervisor had, he was an organic synthetic chemist, but he had seen the writing on the wall and he set up a lab that was 50% molecular biology, 50% chemists. 
and we worked hand in hand. And that's what drew me to the lab because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be on that cutting edge. And it was a fantastic place to work. Moving back to ANU was much more traditional organic synthesis. That's what we do. We make stuff, which is fine because it's great training, but it was very different. So, mm. yeah, both moves were completely new research for me. So you'd done the strategic thing. You'd gone to ANU, which is where you go to get a lectureship position, apparently, apparently <laughs> at least in chemistry. Yeah, but then it was, yeah. yeah. How did you go about making yourself competitive for lectureship positions? And I think these days when we talk about tenure or TNR positions, they're quite rare. And I think a lot of people really want to know how do you how do you crack into that? Yeah. Well, I, I didn't, as it turns out, at ANU. So I moved as a postdoc back to Brisbane to the pharmacy school. But that was partly because I wanted to come home. I wanted to be in Brisbane and partly because it was a really good opportunity to move back into more biological chemistry. So making yourself competitive is hard because it is all about publications often, but then it's also about being a good citizen. An academic has to be a lot of things and a good researcher is one of them but they also have to be other things. So one opportunity that I was handed and I could have said no, my boss in Canberra wanted to go overseas with his wife and his wife was a chemistry lecturer at the local College of Advanced Education, they used to call them. And he said, do you want to do her lectures for the next four weeks? You can take over her class. And he was prepared to allow me to take that time and it was my first introduction to tertiary teaching. And I loved it. I loved it. And that's what when I realised. What did you love about it? The students were so fun. The content is hard. So if you're teaching chemistry, these were still adults, but they were young adults who really hadn't had a lot of experience in chemistry. And so you had to start low and build them up. And they were so fun because when they'd get something and they'd understand something, they'd celebrate in the class, oh, I understand that. And it's like, yay! Light bulb moment. Yeah. And no, it was so infectious and I just loved it. And I thought, oh, I could do this for a long time. I'll pretty like this. So that was a wonderful opportunity. And that, you know, stood out on my CV compared to other people. Or oh, she's had real teaching experience. Mm. I tutored as a PhD student, as everybody does. But no, no, I had taught at a tertiary institution, a block of lectures. Mm. So you have to learn to say yes. I mean, it was challenging and it took a lot of my time. I did it in my spare time, but I wasn't going to say no to an opportunity like that. Did you find your first lecture intimidating? A little bit. A little bit. And then I thought, how bad can it be? Yeah. You know, Give it a whirl, I, see I, what happens. Yeah. And what's the worst that could happen? So I, I think it was nice to have that introduction where the students weren't particularly challenging students. My first first year lecture at UQ, that was 500 students in first year. That yeah. was scary, but you have to do it. And at the end of it, it was fun. Mm. It's nice. What I did do though, and I've always been very pleased that I did, was before I started lecturing those big classes, I asked some of my colleagues, could I come and sit in their lectures? And so people like Laurie Garn and James DeVos, 
they allowed me to just come and sit and see how it was done, how it was paced, how did you handle certain situations and that was so valuable Mm -hmm. for me. I feel like I learnt from some of the best and I, I probably didn't do a great job the first time I lectured first year, but it was okay because the students never complained very much. I mean, I can't judge my first ever lecture. I think I did it in like 20 minutes because I was speaking so fast. (laughs) There's a little bit of that. But the other thing is I was very honest with the students and compared to the rest of the chemistry staff, I think I did look much younger than them. And so I was always very honest with them. I've never lectured this stuff before, so let's see how we go. Yeah. And I still do that. I have to lecture stuff this semester that I've never done before, haven't done for 10 years. The students know that. Yeah. We'll do it together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really true. Like, you know, sometimes a student will ask you a question and you don't know the answer and that's fine. You can find the answer and you can help the student find the answer. I think being open and honest really works well with students. Yes, and I learnt never try to bluff your way through it. <laughs> just just say, I don't know off the top of my head, but why don't we all go away and see if we can find out? So one of the things I think that is particularly challenging about teaching is that you have to have sort of constant evaluation and re-evaluation and adapting your methods. Do you want to talk about how you've managed that through your career and even even just with the recent example of COVID and having to go online and how that's been. Oh, that was fun. Yeah. I think you have to be brave and prepared to fail. So you have to give things a go and, again, bring the students along with you and you tell them, if you don't think this is working, I need you to tell me. And you just have to go with it. If it doesn't work, you can always change it back Mm. or change it somehow differently The COVID experience was interesting because we suddenly then had no choice. It actually came at a time for UQ when they had spent nearly five years trying to convince academics that we should teach more online, that we should use the online environment. And they had got so much pushback. And I had colleagues in the school tell me as TNL chair, I cannot do this course online it's not going to UQ to you was the big thing at the time. We can't do that. In 2020, they had a week. You've got a week to make it happen or you don't have a course. Mm. And all of a sudden, we could do it. And yes, the technology suddenly caught up. We didn't know anything about Zoom Mm. before COVID. So we got a lot out of COVID as far as learning how do you do these things. But it was interesting to see so many people who had said, I absolutely can't do it, Mm. suddenly have no choice. And you think, actually, I can do it. And I was one of those. You can teach chemistry by Zoom. It's not the best way Mm. to teach it, but it's better than not seeing them at all. And a combination of delivering stuff online and then when you do see them, you do the really important stuff Mm. That's what COVID has given us, an appreciation of what's really important to be face-to-face with and what can probably be put online. Let's just hope we remember some of these lessons. and We shall see. Yeah, we shall see. So let's jump back to your science. Tell me a little bit about your current research and what in particular you're really excited about for the next five years in your research field. So the 
really exciting project at the moment is working with the herbal medicine company Integria. They have been very generous for years working with us. But about five years ago, we all had the opportunity to work with Menzies School of Health in Darwin. And they have really great connections with their Indigenous communities in and around Darwin and on the Tiwi Islands. And so we're part of a bigger project to try to learn more about the traditional medicines of our own Indigenous people. And as our Integrity colleagues have said to me, we spend most of our time manufacturing and selling traditional medicines from India, North America and China. Why don't we have a product from here? And so that's the aim. And it's been really exciting. Unfortunately, we didn't get to connect with the Indigenous communities the way it was originally planned because of COVID. We couldn't go to the Tiwi Islands during COVID, but we certainly hope to now. And it's really moved along. And it's interesting to get information from them because, and I can't think of one that hasn't, every plant they've pointed us to that they use has got interesting compounds in it. They are batting 100% at the moment. I'm not sure what all the compounds do, but that's what's fun about it. We can test them, but they're all full of really interesting natural products. Have you had any major setbacks in your career that you know, you've know you really learned something valuable from? So doing all the moves, you also learn how to start again and how to make the most of a new research project. But for me personally, I had health concerns. Once I got my lectureship at UQ, I had a major medical incident. So I lost a baby I'm and so they nearly lost me in the process. So I had an eclamptic seizure, which is not something you usually recover from. That puts everything in perspective. I was very sick in hospital and I was writing the rejoinder for an ARC grant. <laughs> so I was sitting up in hospital trying to get this rejoinder in on time. And, and my specialist came in and she said, well, this is new. It, it does put things in perspective. And sometimes you just have to say, well, there are more important things mm. for me to worry about right now. The research and my career will be there when I get back. And the people around you make sure it is. And I was so well taken care of by my colleagues. I was telling somebody this morning, I, I got out of hospital after being in hospital for four weeks. I called UQHR. I said, look, I'm really sorry. I disappeared for a month and I haven't contacted you. And she said, oh, Joanne, we know all about you. Don't worry about it. Because somebody in the school had called them, explained what was going on, and they had sorted it. Reach out to people who will look after you and care about you. And there are more important things than your career. And it's, it'll be there. You can get back to it. Mm. And so how important do you think, especially these days, a mentor and a supportive network is in, in your career development? Yeah, it's absolutely critical. You need to have the new term is critical friends around you, people who will look out for you, people you can ask for advice. They don't have to be in your field. They can be in allied fields, but none of us can do this on our own. It's just too hard. And so you've got to choose your friends wisely. Sometimes the people you might think should be your mentors are sometimes not your best mentors. And you need to recognize that and take from them what you can that's positive. 
but then look elsewhere for advice or for support. That's what I've done many times. If somebody is a good friend to you, you've got to be a good friend to other people. And I think that's why it's a network. It's not, I have my people around me that look after me. I look after other people too. Mm. And mm. and that's what Reciprocal. we have to encourage in science and less of this, we're all competing against each other. And so you can't trust anybody. That's awful. And that's no way to live. So we all have to be a little bit more supportive of each other and know that we're all in this together. And actually, you do better science as a team than mm. you do as an individual. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. What advice would you offer to women who are starting their career in science today, either as just young high school students or university students or research high degree students? What advice would you offer them? Do what you love and stick with it. The best advice I heard was it's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm. So if you hit hurdles, if you have a year that's not so great for whatever reason, it's not the end. You've got to stick with it for the long haul. Don't compare yourself to other people because you are different. You have different things going on in your life. Everybody is different. We are so bogged down in this idea that I have to compare myself to the people in the next door lab or compare myself to somebody in who was in my undergraduate class. No, you don't. You're on your own journey. Things will happen for you in a different time and that's okay. And I guess just if you love it, stay with it. If you don't love it, find something you do. Life's too short to spend your career doing something you don't like. Thank you very much for all your insights today. We really appreciate you taking the time. No problem at all. Lovely to talk to you. You've been listening to Women in Science. Your donation can help us tell more stories like this one. You can find the donation link in the episode notes. Production for this episode was by Dr Marina Fortes, Dr Marluce Decker and Dr Kirsty Short. Senior technical production was by Dan Seed. Make sure you subscribe to Women in Science. Thanks for listening. Listener.